Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. Take your Bibles. Let's go over to the book of Matthew. I want to go to chapter 1 and verse 1. And today, in order to uh, walk with us through this um, overview of the book today, you need to either have an open Bible, a page through the text that we'll be looking at, or also uh, maybe a copy of the, um, the sermon notes, the, uh, the manuscript. That would be, that'd be great. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word, for its power, and the way that you, in your grace, um, mark our lives by virtue of what we're studying, what we're reading. We thank you for those moments in our own quiet time when you just show up, and it's like we are speaking directly to you in prayer and hearing directly from you in your word. And I pray that today as we reflect on the overall trajectory of this book, that you'd bring moments back to our mind where you, you met with us, you spoke, you, you used your word to drive a deep point into our hearts. And so as we consider this whole picture of Matthew today, I pray that again you would exalt your son and that the result would be a group of people who are just passionate followers of him. And so Jesus, to you, we say thanks for being able to be with you through this book. And uh, we are so grateful that you have met with us so many times through this beautiful gospel. And so help us now once again, as we end, to hear from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we heard the triumphal finish of the book of Matthew, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's his universal lordship, and if you are a Jesus lover, you read the end of Matthew and you just go, yes, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So that's his universal lordship. Then we heard about his universal mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, this message needs to be spread. You need to go anywhere the gospel isn't, especially where it's never been heard, go there. And then, if you understand the universal lordship and the universal mission, that will result in some risky action steps. As simple as getting to know your neighbor's name, um, trying to talk to them about the gospel, or maybe in some cases feeling like God's tugging on your heart to go someplace a little dangerous. And in that case, you need important promises like, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So with those three key things, this universal lordship, this universal mission, and this universal promise, the book of Matthew ends, and it's almost as though it ends with this singular statement, to be continued. Friends, you see, we're actually writing the final chapters of Matthew in our lifetime. We're fulfilling this great mission. We're doing what Matthew wanted us to do, and that's to take this universal lordship of Christ and to be able to spread it. And we are the benefactors of that gospel being spread. So that was the triumphal finish. In contrast to that, look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. It begins extremely boring. Seriously, you don't begin a book with a list of names, let alone names you can't pronounce. And that's how Matthew begins. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew starts this book this way for a reason. And when you understand his overall goal, it makes sense why he would start his book that way, and then why he would end as he does in Matthew chapter 28. And when you understand the overall picture, which is what we're going to talk about today, you'll see how it fits just beautifully together in a singular message that Matthew is trying to communicate. 
So today marks the end of a two-year journey through the book of Matthew. And a number of you last week said, okay, so where are we going next? And I made you wait until this Sunday. So let me just tell you where we're headed in God's Word through the remainder of 2011. Um, For the next two weeks after this sermon, I'm going to talk about the subject of stewardship, money, and giving. The title of the sermon series will be The Kingdom of Me. How and why God wants me to give. Now you might wonder, well, why are we talking about money? Here's why. Because we're not asking you to give anything. That's why. And the best time to talk about giving is when we're not asking you to give to anything. And we really need to talk about the subject of stewardship and money because it is, frankly, the prevailing God of our day. And so we've got to talk about this, and the Bible has a lot to say about money, so we'll be there for two weeks. And then in the end of May, I'm going to launch into a series that will take us through the summer, which will be a verse-by-verse study of ten different psalms. The title of that is A Song for Every Season. Don't you love the psalms? I mean, when you're really hurting, when you're really down, when you're really mad, you can go to the psalms and you can find your emotion there. And so we're going to look at psalms of lament, psalms of forgiveness, uh, psalms of regret, psalms of joy, thanksgiving, and just see how there's a psalm, there's a song for every season of life. And then, as we've done for the last number of years, in August, we're going to spend some time particularly focusing on something in regards to relationships. Uh, last year we did the fear of man. This year we're going to do something on the subject of the tongue and how we talk. The title of that series will be, Oh, Be Careful Little Mouth. <laughs> now, I know none of you struggle with that, so invite your friends who all have <laughs> issues. and uh, Or talk about them and invite them. So that'd be really good for Susie, wouldn't it? She should come. Yes, good. So, Oh, Be Careful Little Mouth. And then in September, we have some historic moments in the life of this church. And... Um, September 11th, we'll celebrate the last service in this facility. Can you believe that? I mean, God has met with you, met with me, met with us in this very room. God has shown up in particular moments, and we want to celebrate that as the last service on September 11th here. And then September 18th is the first service in the new sanctuary. We're going to celebrate that. And then the next week after that, talk a little bit about who we are as a church and what are some of the core foundational things that just cannot change. Even though the facility may change, what is it about us? and what God has done that just cannot change. This is a huge moment in the life of our church. This, this is the only time we're going to move in, in my lifetime, I promise you, into another facility. So we're not doing this again. So uh, it's been a great process, but th- this is it for this property. It's a big moment in the life of our church. Then October will be our Missions Emphasis Month. We're going to turn the spotlight towards global evangelism like we always do. And then at the end of October, we'll begin our next really significant book study, which will be a pastoral epistle. We'll be talking about the book of First Timothy, looking at kind of what is, how does God want the church to be and what are the things that we need to think about. So you could begin uh, reading and studying that book. That's been my personal quiet time since the beginning of the year. A great book with some really challenging passages. In fact, about three weeks ago, I thought, why in the world did I decide to do this? Because there's some really, really challenging and some important passages in that book. So needless to say, 2011 is going to be a great year as we study God's word through Psalms, through um, mission emphasis, through the subject of the tongue, and also in uh, First Timothy. So you're not going to want to miss um, a Sunday in terms of what God's going to do here. Now, what is Matthew's core message? One of the joys of studying a book verse by verse and looking at it so closely is you're able to dig deep into the meaning when you examine it up close. When you're able to get that close to your spouse, you can smell her perfume. Right? But the problem is, is that you only get a particular view of the, of the, of the whole 
when you take a step back, you can understand the whole picture. And in many respects, studying a book that in-depthly is helpful, but at the same time, the downside is that you, for, you can forget that the book was written probably to be read in one setting and probably to be read out loud to a congregation of people who didn't have their own copy of God's Word. And so therefore, the book of Matthew really has one aim and one purpose. And looking at the individual parts, while helpful, you could really miss the overall portrait that Matthew is trying to paint. We get a hint at that portrait in chapter 1 and verse 1. Yes, in the midst of this genealogy, we get a sense of what Matthew is trying to say. Look at it. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In this small little verse, we get a sense that first, the book is about Jesus Christ. Two words put together, meaning Jesus, the one who's come to save people from their sins, but also Christ, and that's the really important word. The word Christ means the chosen one, the anointed one. It was a Messiah marker. So this book is about Jesus, the Messiah, and then secondly, the son of David. Remember, there was a promise given to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that from him would come an eternal king. And so Matthew indicates that this is Jesus who's in the line of David, and then he says also a descendant of Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people, and whom God promised that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so Matthew indicates here this Jewish flavor of Jesus the Christ, the descendant of David, this royal king, and also the descendant of Abraham, this one who would be a blessing to all nations. And Matthew is unique in this focus of this Jewish Messiah. Mark writes for a Roman audience. Luke writes for Greeks. John writes for really everyone. And what Matthew has is this unique Jewish flavor, which explains why he, more than any other gospel writer, has almost 50 references to the Hebrew Old Testament. As well, why the theme of fulfillment comes up so many times in Matthew's gospel. I mean, if you read through it, you'll see over and over that Matthew says something like this. This happened so that it could be fulfilled. Or this took place so that what was said by Isaiah or Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And in Matthew's mind, fulfillment means more than just God keeping his promises. It means that Jesus is the intersection of God's divine drama. That all of the events in the Old Testament are pointing to this moment when Jesus comes. And what he wants you to realize is Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. He's come. And he wants you to believe in him. He wants you to receive him. He wants you to see that this Jesus paid the atonement for your sins. To ransom you, to rescue you, Matthew is an evangelist in how he presents Jesus. But his goal is not just to tell stories. He has a theological agenda. He has a global agenda. From a theological perspective, he wants you to know what Jesus is all about. He wants you to know that he is the Son of God, that he's come to to pay the atonement for sins. And he also wants you to realize this global focus. So, therefore, if I could put it to you in one sentence, here's the purpose of Matthew's book. It is to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah sent to bring the kingdom of God to the world. So from the city of Jerusalem comes this Jesus. Jesus enters and he dies in the city of Jerusalem. And from that city goes the global focus of this evangelistic effort to take God's kingdom, come in the person of Jesus, and to bring that to the world. So Matthew wants you to know Jesus is the one. 
So we divided up this series into eight different sections. And what I want to do is go over them. And to be honest with you, I'm not going to say anything new today. But let's be honest. You don't remember a lot of what I said anyway. So it's, it's going to be helpful for us to go over it again. Kind of depressing to think about. But we won't go there. And the, the reality is that this, this book has a great theme that's woven all the way through it. And I want to show that to you. Before I do that, though, I'm curious as to how many of you would say that, that you you came to College Park Church before the Matthew series. And so, in other words, you've been here from the very beginning all the way through. I mean, barring some illnesses and a couple of Sundays when you just slept in and were sinful, you were here for the most part all the way through this series. But you came at the very beginning of Matthew. How many of you would be in that case? Here, worship two, raise your hand. All right, good. Now put your hands down. How many of you came somewhere in the middle of Matthew? Raise your hands. I want you to see this. Okay, notice the the broad diversity of folks. So some of you will always mark the moment when you came to this church by virtue of where we were in this study. So let's begin. Matthew chapter 1 to 4 shows us that Jesus really is the one. In these first four chapters, what Matthew does is he shows us the lineage of Jesus. He shows us his miraculous birth, shows us his baptism, and then also his temptation with these things leading into both an introduction of Jesus and also a validation of his ministry. So think of chapters 1 to 4 as a platform upon which Matthew is building his theology of what Jesus is all about. If you have your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. The angel says to Joseph, Matthew 1, 21, that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins... And then Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. There's that theme again, fulfillment by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, the 400 years of silence that had happened from the last time of prophecy in the Old Testament to now when Jesus comes on the scene is over. God has spoken, and the beauty is that God is coming back to his people. Like in the Exodus, he's coming to get them. But now... Now, he doesn't come in the form of a deliverer like Moses who leads his people out of slavery. Now, instead, he comes in the form of Jesus who leads them out of a more important slavery, the slavery of their own sinful hearts. And then look at chapter 3 and verse 16. In the baptism of Jesus, we saw that Jesus goes into the waters of John's baptism, which, if you'll remember, was a baptism different than ours. It's a baptism of repentance. It was preparing for the coming of God. It was preparing the way of the Lord. It was acknowledging your sin. And so Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, even though he was sinless, so that he might identify with us. And he goes into the waters of baptism, and then he comes out, and it says, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, like a portal. The heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest upon him, and then behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It is this divine endorsement of the person of Jesus Christ. He comes out of the waters of repentance. The heavens open and God says, this is my son. I am pleased with him. This is the inauguration of Christ's ministry. Of course, you know what happens next. He goes in the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. And this then leads us into his first sermon. Jesus' ministry has now been inaugurated. And that takes us to the Sermon on the Mount or a series that we called Get Real. Remember this? 
This was some of the most in-your-face teaching that is in the entire Bible. I mean, this is, this is gutsy, right up in front of your grill. Hey, are you going to be real or not? Are you just going to play this veneer um, follower of Jesus thing? You know what I mean by veneer? By that I mean, so some of you have furniture in your house like we do, and it looks like maple, it looks like oak, but we all know it's not. It's just a picture, right, is all it is. And then they took it, they glued it on top, of it, or they took a really thin veneer. If you were to peel it back, you'd find sawdust that's been glued together, and they call that wood. And and so what, what happens is if your kids wreck it or a knife goes into it, or if you have a flooring product like that, you drop a knife, you gouge it, you'll see that we got about a three or four millimeter piece of, of hardwood, and underneath it is this fake stuff. Well, I think that's a pretty good metaphor for the evangelical church, and that there's a lot of people who come on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they, they dress it all up, but if you peeled back the veneer of their life, you'd find something that doesn't really look like it's of much substance. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It gets right after that. The Sermon on the Mount was what I call the ethics of grace, Meaning, it's not a new law that Jesus gives us, but it's rather, in light of all that he is, how should we then respond? And what happens is that Jesus gets to the motive behind obedience. He gets to the heart as to what God intended when he said things like, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus, in chapter 5 and verse 27, look at that passage, he uses this formula of saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and in this rather famous text in 527 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the idea is that whether it's anger or lust or divorce or oaths or revenge or giving or prayer or fasting or worry, Jesus' target, the cross eyes of his teaching, cross hairs rather, of his teaching is on your heart. He doesn't lay down a new law. He rather gets to the heart of what the law was driving at, which is that you are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So Jesus' first sermon is all about what it means to get Real to be real, not to be fake, but to have hearts and motives that genuinely love and obey the commands. Then we move into Matthew eight to ten, where Jesus calls his followers to to follow him. Once the Sermon on the Mount is finished, Matthew shows us some miracles that Jesus does. Up to this point, he's not done any miracles. Interestingly enough, the first two miracles that he does are to people who are outcasts in society. First was a leper, somebody who would be continually outside of even the city of Jerusalem, who whenever someone would come up to them would have to say, unclean, unclean, and that was his life. And yet we find here Jesus compassionately healing the man, and not only healing him, he healed him by touching him. He didn't touch a leper, unless, of course, you were the Son of God and you did it to heal him. And that's how Matthew shows us Jesus. And then he shows us also his power to heal from a distance, with healing the centurion's servant. Even though the centurion was outside of God's family, outside of the Jewish people, still Jesus reaches out to him, and by virtue of his faith, the, the, the centurion's faith, heals his servant. As well, we see Jesus calm a storm, he casts out a demon, he heals a paralytic, he restores the girl to life, he heals a woman with a perpetual bleeding problem, and what Matthew shows us is this Jesus who is full of power, 
And then at the end, in chapter 10, having shown us that Jesus is full of power, he then sends out the disciples for their first real mission. And here's the encouraging words that he tells them in chapter 10 and verse 16. So after seeing all this power, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. And he says to them, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So the idea is I'm full of power, I'm full of might, you're going to go out, and we are dealing with a world and culture that is not going to receive us. Then Jesus begins to paint various portraits of himself, particularly for the religious leaders and, and those who were kind of his casual followers. And what we found in this section is that this crowd of people is becoming increasingly hostile. There's a change of tone in chapter 11 where suddenly people are more marked by unbelief than they are belief, more by conflict with Jesus rather than agreement, more by opposition rather than by support. What happens is that Jesus and the religious rulers begin to butt heads. And there's this growing strife. Jesus paints a portrait for them as to who he is as the Messiah. And they say, in effect, we know the Messiah and you're not it. And so this portrait of Jesus begins to be an offensive one. In fact, after the healing of a demon-possessed man, the Pharisees say something terrible to Jesus. Look at Matthew 12, 23. Matthew 12, 23, and all the people were amazed by this healing, and they said, can this be the son of David? In other words, is is this the Messiah? And when the Pharisees heard it, they tried to shut it down. They said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, this must have sent trembles all the way, tremors all the way through heaven, because the Pharisees just suggested that the son of God did his miracles by the power of the arch enemy of God. It's remarkable that they weren't burnt at that very moment up. So this portrait of Jesus that we see here is one of increasing conflict as Jesus continues to define himself. In fact, in chapters 13 to 17, we see that Jesus becomes very puzzling. So we've moved from his teaching to his miracles to this growing conflict, and now Jesus becomes very puzzling. In fact, intentionally, he becomes a bit of an enigma to the religious crowd. This is when Jesus begins to speak in parables. He gives us the parable of the sower, the weeds, the leaven, the hidden treasure, the costly pearls, the dragnet, and he he uses these parables for two reasons. One, to communicate truth to people who are his followers, and secondly, to hide the truth from those who are not his followers. In fact, Jesus says as much in chapter 13 and verse 14. He says, you will indeed hear, but you will never understand. These parables are really powerful. In fact, I believe the most downloaded sermon of the entire series is within this particular section. The title of that sermon was, Only a Few Are Truly Saved. Where Jesus really identifies, what is, what is real belief, what does real faith really look like? So he's an enigma to most, but to his inner circle, they get to see him in all of his glory in one particular moment. It's a a precious, precious text. In uh, Matthew chapter 17, look at this one in verse 2. So he's this enigma, he's confusing, he's not understood. And then Peter, James, and John, they get to see him 
for all that he is. This is the second time where God has opened the portal of heaven and spoken. The first was at his baptism, and now at the transfiguration, we see this. It says he was transfigured before them. In other words, God removed the veil of who Jesus was, and it's not that he became something new, but rather they were able to see him in all of his glory. And the text says, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. This is, this is also the moment when Peter, so excited about this moment, suggests that they have a little camp out, right? And he says, Lord, this would be good, wouldn't it, if we could set up some camp and we could be here for a while? And the text tells us that while those words were on Peter's lips, camp out. And while he's saying that, bang, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadows them, camp out. This is my son. God interrupts Peter. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. This is my son. He's the one full of glory and full of power. Then Jesus begins talking to his disciples of what they should do. What would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were me? He begins to talk about this, this notion of what it means to be a follower of his and begins talking about a variety of subjects as to what real-world Christianity is. He lays out before them some important concepts like, so what does it mean to be truly great? What does it mean to be first and what does it mean to be last? What happens when... Someone steps out of the bounds of their relationship with Christ. What do you do? It's called church discipline, Matthew 18. And why do you do that? What is forgiveness all about? What is divorce? And when should you or shouldn't you? How do you handle your wealth? And how should we view this thing of humility? These are all things that um, Jesus addresses and deals with, helping his disciples to see their counterculture mission. And then look at chapter 22 and verse 37. He, he really sums it all up when the Pharisees at one point tried to trap him. And they said, hey, what, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus identified it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend or hang all the prophets. So Jesus talks to the disciples about what it means to be a follower of his. And then he moves on to the subject of the end, that the end is near. This is called the Olivet Discourse. Matthew was the first of five different teaching sections in the book of Matthew. Um, Sermon on the Mount being the first. Olivet Discourse is the last, and it talks about traumatic events that are coming in the future, false teachers, the desertion of some of his followers. In the midst of this teaching session, Jesus talks about this great hardship that's coming, this time of of tribulation, this horrific defiling of the temple called the abomination of desolations. And he also talks about his second coming. And then woven through all these warnings and kind of the scary thought of what's going to happen in the future, he calls his disciples, and for that matter us, to be watchful, to be faithful, to be trustworthy. The idea is that since this is the way that things are going to be at the end, be careful about your own soul. Be sure when it comes to the final judgment that you are ready. And be sure you're not just filled with a head knowledge, but you're also living this out. 
In fact, that's what Jesus says in chapter 25, verse 40. As you did it to the one of least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So this discourse, the Olivet Discourse, marks the final teaching of Jesus, and it also marks the end, really, of his teaching ministry, and then marks the beginning of his suffering ministry. He's warning the disciples about what is coming in the future. Look at um, chapter 24 and verse 36. Who could forget this sober warning? As were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two men, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I led into this series with um, an illustration of uh, a man, Harold Camping, who has predicted that the Lord will return. Remember I told you about that? I told you there were billboards. Well, the other day I saw one driving on 465. They purchased a billboard on May, I think it's 21 or so, that he predicts that the Lord is going to come. And he's been wrong before. And who knows if he's right this time. Frankly, I don't care because I'm ready. And I hope you are too. Finally, we see the passion of, the, of Christ, and that's Matthew chapter 26. And everything that Matthew has written up to this point really culminates in this focus. Matthew 26 to 28 captures the suffering of Jesus, the, the nature of the atonement, and this really is the heart of the heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel, the good news. And Matthew showed us something that most Jewish people would have missed, and that is the idea of a suffering servant. Jesus was betrayed, he was falsely accused, he was beaten, he was condemned, he was crucified. We, we saw in this section the sky was darkened, Jesus cried out in abandonment, the earth shook, the temple curtain was torn in two, God's judgment came, and then we heard two words put together that should send shivers down our spine, words that are familiar, but words that should never go together, the words, Jesus died. Those words should have never gone together. And yet they did, and he was buried, and yet gloriously, no, not for long. Matthew 28 tells us that when the women went to the tomb, they heard this from the angel. This is 28, verse 5. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. And in that moment, Matthew turns from a dark book at the end to a book of victory and it's from this position as the victorious christ who's gone through this this validation of ministry and healing and teaching and opposition with the jewish authorities he becomes the suffering messiah he goes into the grave he comes out victorious and from this position of conquering hell and death and sin jesus says to his followers this mission all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, and it just ends right there. 
What happens is this book comes full circle. From chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 28 and verse 20, we hear that God has fulfilled his mission. The prophecies and the promise given to David that an eternal king would reign forever, that's the one. It's Jesus. The prophecy that God would send someone who would be a blessing to all the nations, here it is in Jesus. That Jesus is this Messiah. He sent to bring God's kingdom now to the world, and now we get to be a part of that mission. You know, I I chose to study this book because I wanted not just to learn about Jesus, I wanted to hear from Jesus. And what I love about Matthew is it's made Jesus very personal. I love this book because I love Jesus. And and for that matter, you know what, I'm kind of sad to see this book go. We won't probably ever be back to Matthew again. This book has captured the heart of what Jesus is all about And it is a glorious treatment of both his Jewishness, his Messiahness, and the whole element of what it means for him to be king. He is Lord, ruler, master, and he is alive. And that's what this book tells us. So, let me give you some concluding thoughts as just some personal takeaways. Here's the first. Friends, this book was written as an evangelistic tool. It was meant to explain to you who Jesus is. And my guess is there's some of you here, worship to, or are going to listen to this message on the Internet, and you have heard maybe countless messages in this series, or maybe this is just the first one that you've heard. And the call of this book is really this. It is that you need to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. To respond to the good news means, very simply, that God is holy and you are not, and that's a problem. And the whole reason why this book is written and why Matthew rejoices that Jesus comes, God with us, is that God condescends. He comes into your world. He becomes a man in order so that he could pay for the atonement of your sins. He could bear the wrath of God on that cross. And he's alive. And that means that one day, listen, he is going to be your judge. He knows you from the inside out. He knows stuff that no one else knows. He knows the stuff that you agree to when in your heart you really don't. He knows the things that you've said. I've never done that when you have in your heart. He knows all of that. And this judge will judge you with fire and with power and with clarity. And Matthew and I would plead with you to turn from your sins and come to Christ to hear the good news, to see the beauty of who Jesus is, and seeing, believe, and in believing, receive him. So we have to start there because that's the heart of what Matthew wanted. He didn't write this just to educate believers. He wrote this to convince you that Jesus is the Christ and he is Lord and you need to receive him. The second thing is this. Is I want you to reflect with me on the providence of God. Over 50 times in this book, what is happening in Jesus' life relates to what was talked about in the Old Testament. And so this theme of fulfillment comes over and over and over and over. Like no other gospel, Matthew banks his argument on fulfillment. In other words, there are no coincidences in the life of Jesus. Even his death is part of the divine plan of God. And I want you just to reflect with me on this theme of God's providence, because over these two years, there have been particular Sundays when you have shown up And God, in His infinite grace, has coordinated all of the events for you to be in this facility or to hear a message over the Internet or to be in worship to, and God spoke to you. Granted, it was my mouth or it was one of our other pastors who were speaking, but you knew that the preached word in that moment was the word of God. 
it was, there was no coincidences that the events of your life lined up and you happened to be here under one particular sermon and God pricked your heart. It's not that we have spies in your home. It's not that your kids told us what's going on. No, your wife didn't send me an email. Will you pre, will you please talk about this and preach this? Although some try every once in a while, but that doesn't get through. The reality is, is that God, by His Spirit, orchestrates the events of your life. And some of you know that in a particular series section, on a particular text, God orchestrated the events of your life with a particular text, and God mercifully spoke to your heart. And I just want you to reflect on that, especially as we go to the Lord's table, and for you to thank God that He still speaks through His Word. We have a sure Word And we have a providential organizing of all of the circumstances. And even this day, this Lord's Day, is not by accident. God has you here for a reason. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is, what is God trying to say? Third, would be this, return to the heart of obedience. One of the things that I wanted to do in this series was to figure out who are the modern day Pharisees. When I read the text and I see these Pharisees, I'm I'm aghast at what they do and what they are like. I'm floored that they would travel about 180 miles, the equivalent here really between Indianapolis and around Fort Wayne, and they traveled there by foot in order to ask Jesus a question. If you travel 180-some miles to ask Jesus a question, you you thought it would be a really important question. And these Pharisees, they travel all that way, and do you remember the question they ask him? They ask him this really important question. How come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? I mean, that's, that's how myopic they are. We're travel all this way, and this is going to be our zinger. How come they don't wash their hands before they eat? I mean, this is religion gone awry. This is becoming so full of yourself in your piety that you miss the essence of what real obedience is. And it makes me shudder to think how easy it is to become like the Pharisees. To strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. It's a good reminder that Jesus aims for the heart, and so we have to continually be asking ourselves, what's going on in the heart? We need to be a community of believers who don't, who aren't just content with external obedience or behavior modification with our kids. We gotta to get to the heart. We gotta to get to the interior part because this is what Jesus can really change and this is where real life comes from. And we gotta be continually on guard, not just by big, by, be on guard about really big evil things on the outside. We gotta be really concerned about little subtle sins on the inside. And what Matthew calls us to here, friends, is to return to the heart of obedience. In July of 2009, I said this, pious people need to work hard not only on what they do, but why they do it. And then finally, it's this, that we need to resolve to passionately pursue a global mission. I made a major point of this last week, but it bears repeating again. It just seems obvious that Jesus calls every single follower of his to be a disciple-making, gospel-spreading disciple. It means that your orientation, my orientation in life, needs to be radically different. That everything in our life 
is for the aim of making much of Christ. And we need to be careful to remember that we are here on the earth not to blend in, act like, be like, spend like, and look like everyone else. Our mission on this planet is to go where the gospel is not, and especially where it's never been heard. The reason you're in your neighborhood is not just so that you can live. You're not at your job just so you can work. You don't go to school just to learn. You're not going off to college just to get a degree. You're not you got this new job just so that you can climb up the corporate ladder. You are there as a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Your mission is not to drink the juice of our culture, but instead to realize, I have a king, I have a message, i got to go. That's what this book is about. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And it means that when you get this, when you get the Lordship of Christ, and you get the beauty of the global mission, you're going to be compelled to do some things that are risky. You're going to learn the names of your neighbors. Oh! <gasps> You're going to invite him over for a backyard barbecue. You're going to talk to the student at school who's a little different. You're going to talk to your co-workers about their religious beliefs. You're going to go on a vision trip. You're going to go to a a place that's kind of dangerous. You're going to maybe volunteer to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go and be a missionary somewhere. I'm going to reduce my lifestyle so I can give. And then when you get that and you look at the margin between what you know life should be where where it could be and where it is, and there's a gap, then you bank your life on this promise, I'm with you always. I, I am with you always so that you taste the sweet grace of sacrificial love for Jesus that when you see the gap, you go, yep, you're worth it. Because you're a universal Lord with this universal mission. And here's my hope. My hope is that this book will help all of us fulfill our mission as a church, which is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. I studied Matthew because I want you to be a flamed-up follower of Jesus, who knows that no matter what happens to you, Jesus is with you, and that his universal lordship and this universal mission is compelling enough so that you not only know Jesus, not only have you been with Jesus, but it means you are bold for Jesus. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed of College Park Church. In fact, there's been lots of people like that that God used. Take, for instance, the apostles. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. And Acts chapter 4 says, And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were like, wait a minute, they're uneducated, but they're bold. How do these go together? They were astonished. And then they recognized, I love this, that they had been with Jesus. That's the link. People who have been with Jesus, even though there may be all sorts of gaps and shortcomings, they can still be bold because they know the beauty of who Jesus is. And I just tell you, my heart is grateful for this gospel because it has helped us to be able to be with Jesus. And so this book ends with a spiritual to be continued that you and I fulfill in terms of that mission by making it work in our world And so we say to this gospel, farewell, friend. Farewell, good friend. We've got some work to do. We've got some work to do. So let's do it for the glory of God. Lord Jesus, you are the king. All authority has been given to you. All power, all majesty. You deserve Every knee being bowed, every tongue being confessed, every tongue confessing to you the glory of your name. And so we pray that you would cement 
in our hearts the reality of what you have done through this book. We thank you for the moments when you showed up and met with us. And we pray that we would not soon forget the beauty of what this gospel has meant for our soul and even for the life and the history of our church. We receive it with gladness and gratitude, but also with gravity. Because we know that when you speak, it's time for your people to listen. So God, thank you for the beautiful portrait of your son from Matthew 1 to 28. And we say to you, our King, Jesus, we love you. And we want to continue your mission on this earth. And we say all this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.